Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is logic and the indescribable. My guest is Rolf Sattler, an emeritus professor of biology from McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a specialist in plant morphology. He is the author of the award-winning book, Organogenesis of Flowers, as well as Biophilosophy, Analytic and Holistic Perspectives, as well as nearly a hundred scientific papers. He has taught a course on biology and Zen at the Naropa Institute in Colorado and has also given an invited lecture on the life sciences and spirituality in honor of the Dalai Lama's 60th birthday. His newest book is Science and Beyond Toward Greater Sanity Through Science, Philosophy, Art, and Spirituality. Rolf is based in Canada, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Rolf. It's a great pleasure to be with you once again. This is our fourth interview. Oh, yes, it's such a pleasure having interviews with you, Jeff. I'm really looking forward to this one because this is a topic that interests me very much. We'll be talking about logic. It's a subject that every scientist, every mathematician, every engineer needs to understand. But it occurred to me very few people even know what the word logic actually means. So let's, let's start there. How would you define logic? Well, uh, it's usually uh, defined as reason or reasoning. Uh, and. Um, and there are certain laws that are used for reasoning, uh, like uh, traditionally uh, there are three laws of thought uh, that play a uh, fundamental role uh, in Aristotelian logic. And um, these three laws are first the law of identity, second the law of uh, contradiction, which means um, A cannot be both A and not A. And uh, third law, um, the law of the excluded middle. That means um, something uh, cannot be, it must be either this or that, either A or not A, but cannot be somewhere in the middle. These laws are very fundamental in Aristotelian logic, and I think they have really been fundamental in our Western culture because Aristotelian logic has had such an enormous influence. And I think most people, including scientists, many scientists, are not aware of this uh, enormous influence. One thing that I find really very surprising is when I talk to people about logic, most people I know, and that includes also at least some or maybe many scientists, are not very interested in logic. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, 
because they use logic all the time. And the logic they use is usually Aristotelian logic. And they are not aware, they equate their logic with Aristotelian logic if they have some awareness, but very often they are not aware that there are alternative kinds of logic that are far less limiting than uh, Aristotelian logic. So this is extremely surprising to me. And that's one reason why I like to talk about logic, to draw attention to first uh, the fact that Many people, including many scientists, use Aristotelian logic without being very much aware that they use this logic. And secondly, that they they are they don't know that there are alternatives that surpass Aristotelian logic very much. Well, you know, recently I interviewed Pierre Grimes. It hasn't even been released yet as of the date that you and I are now speaking. And uh, Pierre is an expert in ancient Greek philosophy. So we talked about the word logos, the Greek word from which we derive our word logic. And he pointed out to me, it appears in the uh, Gospels, in the New Testament of John, where John writes, in the beginning was the word logos, and, and the word was God. So logic in, in that sense is, according to Pierre, equated with something very different than Aristotelian logic. It's equated with what he would call divine intelligence. Yes, it can have that meaning too. Uh, but I still think that very often, uh, even in religion, there is th this uh, implication of the three laws of thought, and they are often not questioned. <laughs> Uh, when we look, for example, at different religions, uh, very often we become uh, people, first of all, identify with their religion. Secondly, um, they, they cannot uh, acknowledge that it can be both their religion and another one. So <laughs> there is implied the law of uh, contradiction. And then, well, again, uh, the excluded middle. Well, uh, either this or that. So uh, I find uh, this kind of thinking, although, as you say, uh, one can go beyond it. And one has gone beyond it already in antiquity in some ways. Uh, but it's still <laughs> deeply ingrained. I find so. Well, why do you think Aristotle's particular version of logic became so dominant in Western culture? That's a good question. <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, he was a great philosopher, and um, he had an enormous influence, especially uh, at the beginning when universities were founded, they were uh, very much influenced by Aristotelian philosophy and Aristotelian logic. And then um, Thomas Aquinas, uh, uh, he considered Aristotle the philosopher and, uh, of course, emphasized also his logic very much. And so it got into religion so and into our culture. So, uh, yeah, it, it has been of tremendous influence, really of tremendous influence. <laughs> My sense is that when we normally think of logic and Aristotelian logic, as you point out, we're talking about not just reasoning, but a particular kind of reasoning. I would call it formal 
logic. It's, it's a question of syllogisms. And well, to give you an alternative example, when I did my graduate work, my dissertation advisor was a philosopher named Michael Scriven. And he, as I remember, published a book. The name of the book was Reasoning. And he meant it to be very distinct from logic. He thought of reasoning in, in terms of everyday problem solving, like What's the best pizza to buy? What's the, what automobile should I buy? The, the kind of decisions that, that people make all the time. And he didn't feel that Aristotelian logic was actually that useful for everyday decision making. Yeah, but uh, it, it is used. Uh, people so often talk about identity. For example, identity has become, during the past decades, almost a cult. I refer to the cult of identity. Uh, people uh, emphasize my identity, your identity. Uh, well, that to me is uh, the first law of uh, Aristotelian logic. And um, I, uh, <laughs> if we look at the world, identity actually doesn't exist as far as I can see. Identity to me exists in logic and mathematics. A equals A. But in the real world, if we look at different objects, they are not completely identical. They may often seem so, but the closer we look, the closer we look, the more we find that they are not identical. And even the same object, <laughs> for example, I, I am not identical with um, what myself, what I was yesterday and today. There are still little differences. And um, you know the, the pre-Socratic uh, philosopher uh, Heraclitus uh, understood that very well when he said, uh, you can never step twice into the same river <laughs> because the second time you step into it, the river is not the same and you are not the same. So I think he saw very clearly that there is no identity. And to me, it's it's astounding. I mean, this new cult about identity. And I am concerned about this, not only because I think it's a mistaken uh, view and distorted view of reality, but also because it has such a negative influence on society, because it is highly divisive. Uh, you have... Uh, you have an identity, I have an identity, and uh, and there's no bridge then between it. Um, so um, so this this divisiveness in society that I, I find very troubling. Um, we have a good example of this in Canada. We, you know, we have French Canada and English Canada. And um, French Canadians, they often emphasize very, very much their distinct identity. So do English uh, Canadians also. But if you have a close look uh, uh, among French Canadians, I mean, they, they are not identical. They have many different views. Some of them are separatists and uh, others are not separatists. They want to have a, 
a unified country. Some of them have a um, um, certain temperament, a more Latin temperament. Others are more quiet. <laughs> and uh, so there is enormous variation. Actually, one also when it comes to races, it has been pointed out that there's more variation within a race than between a race. But very often, again, we emphasize the identity with regard to race, religion, what have you. And uh, of course, when we, if coming back to the French Canadian uh, example, I don't want to deny that French Canadians are different from English Canadians, but uh, this difference is a matter of degree and this is very variable. And uh, so uh, to talk about identity, I think is misleading and it's also very. Uh, divisive, and uh, we have seen here in Canada this extra extraordinary divisiveness uh, we, because we, as you may know, we came close to tearing up the country because of that. Um, well, I sometimes, uh, in fact, in preparing for this interview, I happened to notice a picture of myself we have in the house when I was an infant. And I realized I am nothing like that infant, nothing at all, except legally, I'm the same person. I have the same parents. I was born on the same day as, as this infant. So by every legal definition, uh, the infant and I are the same, but in practically no other way are we identical. Oh, yes, that is so true. And one, one thing I sometimes ask myself, if, um, if um, Heraclitus would have had the same influence on Western culture as Plato and Aristotle, how different our society would have been. But as you know, it was really Aristotle, Plato also, they had the enormous influence and, and Heraclitus didn't. So I sometimes ask myself the question, what if uh, pe people would be more aware of Heraclitus? Uh, I, think, I think our lives and our society would be so different and we would have much less uh, trouble and divisiveness. Well, I would tend to agree with you, but my recollection is that Heraclitus didn't leave us with very much. We have fragments of poetry, as I recall, associated with Heraclitus, not many books of philosophy as we have with Plato and Aristotle. That's true, that's true. But uh, the little that is left <laughs> from Heraclitus, I find so profound and so important. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I don't know I had so little influence. It's really, yeah, I guess if someone writes a lot, uh, people who write a lot are often more influential than others who write very little, but not necessarily. Uh, yes, after all, Socrates never left any writings, nor did Jesus, and, uh, and yet they both seem to be quite influential. Yes. <laughs> you make a point of noticing that there are other forms of logic besides Aristotelian logic. There are other formal logical systems. 
you know, in Taoism, um, there is yin-yang. And if we think in terms of yin-yang, it's not an either-or thinking. It's a both-and thinking because everything is both yin and yang. One may be predominant, but it's still both. So it's a both-and logic, what it, I call a both-and logic. And the same we find in, in Buddhism, especially as a as um, um, developed um, in Buddhist logic as developed by Nagarjuna. Um, there are, in contrast to Aristotelian logic that has only two values, either or. In Buddhist logic, we find four values. Uh, we find either or, then both and, and then neither nor. So this is the much more comprehensive logic. Actually, it goes even beyond logic, because when you say something is neither this nor that, well, <laughs> you don't talk about it. It needs to silence, I think. And um, I think uh, the both-and uh, aspect I consider very important. And then, besides, or in addition to Buddhist logic, there is Jain or Jaina logic, and that is a seven-valued logic. In, in other words, there are seven values for each statement, each proposition we make. There are seven values. That means whenever we make a, a proposition, we have to add siyat, uh, uh, which means um from one perspective, or uh, arguably, or um, um, yeah, or of in 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 some in some way in some ways. So, for example, we would say if we make the statement, um, and we would when we say it is it is true, then we would have to say in some ways it is true. But we would also have to say, in some ways, it is not true. And we would have to say, in some ways, it is indescribable. So there we have these three values. And then the remaining four values are the combinations of, of these, like it is true and not true, it is uh, and indescribable, and so on. So imagine if we would be aware of that in every statement that we make, that it, it is true, it is not true, it is indescribable, that means it's beyond logic, beyond reasoning, beyond language. Uh, what an opening this would be, and how this would reduce intolerance in our society where people insist on either whether it's true or it's false, or it's this or it's that. So, um, this um, kind of logic, I think, can have an extremely beneficial effect on individuals, on relationships, on relationships between people, between nations even. And uh, I think it can overcome dogmatism, create more tolerance, create more peace. And peace, of course, is very important in, uh, in Jainism, as you know. It's also called, this logic has been referred to as many-sided 
wisdom because uh, it it illuminates different aspects of of uh, of things, and I, I find it extremely interesting because, as you know, I appreciate very much the philosophy of perspectivism, which also emphasizes that we can have different perspectives, and they are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but enriching, complementary to one another. And so uh, this kind of perspectivism has ancient roots. And again, as far as I can see, it has not become very popular in our culture. Well, I think it's probably the case, Rolf, that many people, even amongst our viewers who are generally quite aware and well-educated uh, haven't heard of the Jain religion. It's not often mentioned when you talk about the great religions of the world. You, uh, the Jains don't always even come up at all. Yes, that's true. And, and I too discovered it rather late in my life. But when I discovered that, I found it extremely fascinating. So it's really, I, I think it's astounding. It's so ancient, right? And what progress have we made uh, today? Uh, I, I feel the majority of people and many scientists are still caught in 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 Aristotelian either-or thinking, in binary thinking, either this or that, and haven't gone beyond uh, that as uh, the Buddha did or the Jain, Jain logic uh, or, yeah. As I recall, the founder of the Jain religion, Mahavira, uh, who lived, I believe, some 2,500 years ago, also was considered the, the father of the, the nonviolent movement. And one of the things that characterizes the Jains more than any other religion is the extraordinary steps they take to make sure that they don't accidentally harm an insect. Yes, and uh, there is a connection between nonviolence and and logic, uh, because I think either or logic tends to be or can be rather violent, because uh, you exclude uh, the other, and uh, and if the other one still insists to be hurt, well, then it can lead to conflict, to antagonism, to violence, even to war. There's an interesting book by Hogan uh, in the, where he points out the extremes uh, which can uh, arise when uh, we are caught in either or thinking. The title of his book is, um, let me see, um, I'm right and you're an idiot. <laughs> That's the extreme, extreme version of either or, right? <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, there's a, a there's an intimate relationship between, I think, violence and logic, and uh, and nonviolence and the more encompassing kinds of logic. Now, recently, I have uh, heard because I watch cable television, which often is quite partisan with regard to politics. People describing political points of view with which they disagree as being insane, which I, I presume means beyond any possibility of logical justification. Yes, yes, uh, this is very unfortunate. Uh, and I think uh, this is the consequence of uh, Aristotelian thinking 
And uh, <laughs> I think uh, in, in, in the Orient where there is more Buddhist maybe thinking or, or Jaina thinking or Taoist yin-yang thinking, there, I, I would, uh, I would think there is more tolerance. Um, although these uh, cultures are not uh, free of war either, because uh, logic is not the only reason for violence and war. There's also deep-seated, I think, uh, genetic uh, reasons that go back to our primate ancestors. Well, it does seem to me that emotion tends to trump logic every time, and, and that at the end of the day, people choose uh, logical preferences based on uh, emotional considerations. They're not really being logical at all. Yes, but I, I think it works also the other way around, that logic influences our emotions. <laughs> Because if we think, if we are convinced that it must be either this or that, then when our emotions come up, we are equally convinced that, you know, I am right. This is right what I'm feeling and what the other one is feeling is wrong. So it's an interplay, I think. One of the real problems that I've often had with the idea of logic is that each logical system, each logical proposition has to start with an axiom. There has to be something that you build upon in logic that is unquestioned, because otherwise you end up in a sort of endless circle. Every axiom, if you question it, then you have to question the next axiom underneath that, and the one underneath that, and, and the one underneath that. So there's always a starting point, uh, something that people say, well, everybody knows, so we don't need to question it. But at the end of the day, those are often, when they are questioned, they de are determined to be untrue. Yes, axioms are the very beginning, and axioms cannot be proven. Uh, uh, we can have proof within an axiomatic system, uh, but uh, axioms themselves are not proven. And so I think we have to look at axioms very much and see what alternative kinds of axioms give us a different insight into reality. So, for example, these three logical categories that Aristotle has described, they are, in effect, axioms. Yes, they are usually referred to as laws of thought, yes, and uh, they are axioms, yes. And uh, I think they are very limiting, very incomplete, uh, because, uh, as I said already, uh, with regard to identity, it just doesn't, uh, our experience of the world doesn't support that. And, uh, and then also when it comes to the law of contradiction, again, our experience doesn't support it because we can often see that uh, Things can be both and. And it was very, has been very interesting, actually, that physics that also followed for a long time Aristotelian logic eventually came to the conclusion that it's inadequate. And you know what happened in quantum physics? I mean, before quantum physics, the debate was, is an electron either a particle or a wave? You see, either or thinking. And then... Niels Bohr came along and sh showed that this doesn't make sense really because depending on how you look at it, it may manifest as a particle or as a wave. So we can say it can manifest at both particle and wave. I think this was an 
an enormous breakthrough in physics. Uh, I, I find it very, very fascinating. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't had such uh, breakthroughs in other sciences like biology, my, my specialty, uh, which you know is plant morphology. There, up to the present time, people keep asking when they look at a plant, uh, especially an organ that doesn't fit very well, they still ask, is it either a root or a stem or a leaf? And of course, very often in academia, the debate is, is it either true or false? And one cannot admit that there can be a grain of truth in something that even appears false. Uh, I find it interesting that sometimes very simple people uh, have this insight. And because I've heard from very simple people that statement, but, uh, this seems false, but there seems to be also a grain of truth in it. I, I hear that very rarely from my academic colleagues, very rarely. They, they seem to be so often caught in either or. What you've described in quantum physics is sometimes referred to as quantum logic, although it seems compatible with the Buddhist logic of uh, Nagarjuna that you've described. And yet, in your field of uh, botany, we, one of the main processes is photosynthesis, which is, to my understanding, a quantum process. It's essential. It's central to botany. Yes. Yes, it is a quantum process. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah, so that plays a very important role. Uh, and yet, uh, the argumentation about these phenomena uh, in the argumentations, people often fall back to either or thinking. And that's really unfortunate. It suggests that even though the great discoveries of uh, wave particle duality are about 100 years old at, at this point, they still haven't been integrated, not even into the academic community. Not sufficiently, no, that's not my experience. I mean, my experience in the academic community is that there's a lot of antagonism. Someone has this theory, another one has a contradictory one. And in, instead of, of seeing them as complementary, uh, they try to, uh, actually, they use violent language very often. They, they try to shoot down the other one. There, there is a... Uh, a linguist, I think he's a linguist, George Lakoff, uh, uh, he, he showed how uh, in, in, in science uh, and maybe outside science too, how often um, uh, violent metaphors are used, uh, like uh, I, I'm shooting down one's in, uh, opponent and, and things like that. So that again, there we are back again to the relationship between, you know, violence and logic. Uh, yes. The systems of logic from the East that you've referred to, Taoist logic, Buddhist logic, Jain logic, they're all thousands of years old. Why do you think they haven't really penetrated into the Western psyche? The main reason is that in the West, uh, Aristotle and his logic ha have been so predominant that others were sort of pushed away. And also, 
that uh, until more recently, not so much uh, was known about Eastern uh, religions and uh, kinds of logic, not so much was known in the West. Uh, now we know more, a lot more about it, but uh, uh, not so much in the 19th century, I would think, and, and even the beginning of the 20th century. It was interesting, so that Niels Bohr, uh, uh, he was very much aware of the yin-yang symbol, and he uh, appreciated and liked it very much. So, yeah, so there has been some change in the 20th century and uh, uh, 21st, but in my opinion, not enough, and because um, uh, the, the, the loss of thought are just so deeply ingrained. I am under the impression, though, that in today's high-tech era, particularly in the field of artificial intelligence, it's become necessary to use a new form of logic called fuzzy logic, which seems very much akin to the Asian versions. Fuzzy logic can have actually, that, that word can have two meanings. Uh, it can mean uh, multi-valued logic, or it can mean uh, fuzzy set theory. And fuzzy set theory was developed by Sade in the 60s uh, and was popularized very much in the 90s by Bart Kosko, who wrote a book on what's it called? Uh, fuzzy thinking, fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzzy thinking, the new science of fuzzy logic. And um, he shows very clearly the difference between that kind of logic and um, the traditional logic. Because in traditional logic, um, set theory uh, refers to sets are considered mutually exclusive. So you belong either to this set or that set. You belong to the set of tall men or to the set of short men or to the set of good people or to the set of bad people or to the set of enlightened people, or the set of non-enlightened people, and so on. So it's, it's exclusive. Think of how often we argue like that still today, and say, oh, well, he is enlightened. Well, that means he belongs to the set of enlightened people. He is unenlightened. Wow, he belongs to the set of unenlightened people. But according to fuzzy set theory, uh, sets are not mutually exclusive. In fact, membership in a set is a matter of degree. So you can belong to a set from anywhere between zero and 100%. That means you can be a member 100% of the set as, as in traditional set theory, but you can be also a member of it only 70%, 50% or whatever. Uh, so, uh, so that changes things very, very much. Uh, we are no longer then locked into this either or, but we can see, we can see the the gradations. And uh, Costco, in his book that I find excellent, really an excellent book, uh, he said, if we have a closer look at things, the closer we look the fuzzier things become. So what seems very clear cut, if you have a closer look, when we see the fuzziness. So fuzziness is a very, very widespread uh, phenomenon. It's almost part, uh, an aspect of uh, reality. And I find it interesting that uh, 
most people, when you when you refer to fuzziness, they um, they they are turned off immediately, um, because to most people, fuzziness um, means vagueness and um, sitting on the fence, not knowing exactly, and so on. So when I talk to people about fuzziness, I get also among my colleagues, uh, I. I, I get most of the time very negative reaction. Now, it is interesting that although people, when they hear fuzziness, they think of vagueness, fuzzy set theory actually is much more precise, much more exact than traditional set theory because it gives you, if it's quantified, it gives you the percentage which, which is quite precise. Now, we cannot always we cannot always quantify, right? But uh, even if we cannot quantify, we can still say it's more or less like this instead of saying it's exactly this or exactly that. It's more like this or to some degree like that, to some extent like that. So that makes also a, a huge difference. So I, I find it interesting really how people are against fuzziness. And, and much of it has to do with that word also, I think. But um, if, if the inventor of fuzzy set theory, um, Sadi, if he would you have used another word, let's say if he would have called it continuum logic, I think it might have had a, a greater impact because people are not so much against continuum as they are against fuzziness. So it was a little bit unfortunate that he used that word, but um, it's really the same. I mean, it's, it recognizes, fuzzy set theory recognizes that there's a continuum of membership from zero to 100%. I am under the impression, actually, that almost everybody who has ever used an automatic camera is using fuzzy logic because that's how cameras do the automatic focusing. Yes, and there are many fuzzy machines. So there are fuzzy washing machines and so on. And one thing that, that Costco also points out in his book is that the Japanese, they... A Buddhist country, or to a great extent, a Buddhist country, they have no problem with, with fuzzy logic. <laughs> and they developed fuzzy machines, whereas in the West it took a long time to get uh, that accepted. Very interesting how culture and logic uh, in intersects. Well, in my own life, Rolf, I'm aware of the fact that uh, I guess you could call it perspectivism. From one perspective, we live in a world of duality. We live in a world where good and evil seem to be very, very real. And it's a smart thing would be to support things that are good and to oppose things that are evil. Uh, but at another level of reality, just as real, good and evil are both part of the great continuum of life. The ground of being gives birth to both good and evil. So in a sense, they're the same. Yes, yes. Uh, as long as one can see these two perspectives, then I have no problem with duality. But very often duality is seen as only the only perspective, or not even as a perspective, but as the way things are. And then it's very damaging. I refer to uh, harmful logic or harmful thinking and uh, healing thinking. And I think when one 
is locked into Aristotelian either or logic, uh, this can become very harmful and one could give endless examples. Uh, examples from uh, interactions between people to interactions between uh, groups of people, organizations, and even even interactions between uh, nations. And um, one just has to remember the statement by President, former President uh, George uh, Bush, uh, right? You are either with us or against us, uh, which really divides very much uh, people also at the national and international level. So this logic, uh, I think, uh, can be very, very harmful. In contrast, if one can see beyond it, or as you say, if one can see that this is only one perspective and there are other perspectives, when one can see that, then I can, I, I refer to these other kinds of logic as, as healing kinds of logic, because they bring together again what has been torn apart by Aristotelian either or thinking. They bring together and healing involves wholeness, togetherness and uh, and not uh, tearing apart and um, destructive uh, actions. So that to me is very important, the, the healing aspect of logic, because very often when people talk about logic, they, they think of it just as a, a kind of reasoning and something maybe even a little bit remote from everyday life. But um, I think um, it, it, has, it, it has a tremendously profound impact on our personal lives and on society, and it can, can have an enormously healing effect. And that's one reason, maybe the major reason, why I'm so interested in logic, because uh, by pointing out these things and clarifying these things, I think one can have a healing effect. And that's why also why I am so grateful to you to, that you invited me to have a, an interview on logic, because I like to talk about it. It's important for us individually, and it's important for society. So thank you, Jeff. I think you are doing a great service to society by having uh, conversations like that. We, we need more of that. We need really more of that. Well, Rolf Sattler, I am delighted to be able to share your passion for logic with the New Thinking Aloud audience. I hope that People take it to heart and pay attention to the many different forms of logic that are available to us. Once again, Rolf, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.